Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. My name is Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gabia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we watched The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, Andrew Dominic's cult western that stars Brad Pitt as Robert Jesse James in the final paranoid months of his life, and Casey Affleck as Robert Ford, the younger man who idolizes Jesse and then comes to resent and ultimately kill him. So this is a Patreon request from Joshua, and I would like to uh, wholeheartedly thank Joshua for this request because this is one of my favorite movies of all time, like top 20, for sure. And so I was just like, yes, I have an excuse to rewatch this movie and then a platform to yell about it for like an hour. (laughs) And Gab is forced to watch it, which I can't make her do. But someone else has. I thought this film was fantastic. I went into this movie knowing precisely nothing about the film or indeed Jesse James. All I could have told you is that he was an outlaw. And Robert Ford, I couldn't even have told you that. And watching this movie, I was like, interesting. Very interesting that Morgan likes this film specifically. As someone who has some insight (laughs) into Morgan's tastes in psychology, I was like, oh, you watched this at a formative age in your early 20s, did you? Or your late teens, this movie about troubled masculinity in American history with homoerotic undertones and elegiac sensibility and very impressive cinematography. It's basically everything Morgan loves. And it's really a chicken or egg situation to do with your film taste, uh, to what extent, what was influenced by what. (laughs) Yes, it's really true. Though it is funny, I never remember how homoerotic it is until I watch it, and then I'm like, oh right, this is pretty gay. Unbelievably (laughs) homoerotic. (laughs) I find it actually less so than I think you probably did, which we can talk about. I think the film's treatment of that is really interesting, and it's definitely part of the movie, and director Andrew Dominic actually, there was a great quote from him from a screening in 2013 that I in fact attended at the Museum of the Moving Image in New York that was written up in IndieWire, where he talks about um, selling the script to Warner Brothers. And his quote is, they looked at the script and they thought, well, this is a bit fruity. But he had made this like action film called Chopper in Australia. He is Australian. And Brad Pitt was attached and the price was pretty low. It was like 30 to $40 million. And they were kind of like, well, we may as well do it. But This is kind of a famous cult film amongst a certain class of film people, I would say. It's obviously not that old. It's 15 years old. But um, it flopped at the time. I think Warner Brothers just totally dumped it. Like, they did very little to promote it because it had been stuck in the editing room for a while. So Andrew Dominic, this was only his second movie. As I said, he'd made this one action. It's not an action movie, actually. It was a sort of true crime film in Australia called Chopper. And then made this like long, sprawling, weird Western epic. And Warner Brothers was just like, what the fuck is this? Like, we do not want this movie. And so he got into fights with them about the final cut. And it took a while for the movie to come out. And it did get nominated for a few Oscars, which we'll talk about. But um, it kind of faded away pretty quickly. But it has this sort of obsessive following of people like me who saw it at the time or after. And were like, oh, this is like... A masterpiece. And also watching it for the first time now, it did make me wonder kind of how many films were just directly influenced by this because it really didn't seem that out there to my 2022 sensibilities. Well, I don't think it's 
that weird as a movie. I think it's weird as a studio release, which, like, even in 2007, that was kind of odd. 2007 was also, like, the peak of the independent film boom. So part of what's interesting to me about this movie in context is that it comes out the same year as No Country for Old Men, and both of those two films were shot by Roger Deakins. It's also the same year as There Will Be Blood, Zodiac is also this year, like, it is one of the great years in American cinema for movies about, like, white men who are having serious problems about, like, masculinity and their place in the world, which, like, end of the Bush years, that all makes sense. But a lot of the films that were coming out and doing well, and especially doing well at the Oscars, were movies that were funded by, like, technically parts of the studio, but they were, like, the focus features of Universal, right? So, like... There Will Be Blood was Warner Independent, I want to say. Like, there were all these kind of, like, independent production houses or, like, parts of studios that were doing these kind of indie films, in quotes. And then this was Warner Brothers, and I think Warner Brothers just, like, didn't know what to do with it. And the original cut was four hours long. So <laughs> so you can imagine that whatever it originally looked like was pretty long and sprawling. And the plot is totally driven by character and emotion as opposed to plot, and I think that was a lot of what tripped them up. So, like, it's not hard to follow at all if you're paying attention to, like, what's happening emotionally, but if you want a movie that's a bunch of, like, train robberies, this is not going to satisfy you. Yeah, I mean, the title of the film spoils what's going to happen at the end of the film. Um, I was amused and interested to see that Brad Pitt had it written into his contract that they weren't allowed to change the title of the film, which is, of course, the correct choice, because it's a great title, even if it is unwieldy and long. But also, as you said, like, if you're like, what's this movie about? The answer is, it's about Jesse James, a legendary historical figure that loads of people think is really cool, just being kind of depressed and a fuck up and knowing that he's doomed to die like some figure in a Greek tragedy and being dogged by this weird teenage stalker. And that lasts for like two hours and then he dies in the way that everyone knows he's going to die. If you know about history, which I don't. <laughs> so... <laughs> But, yeah, like, of I mean, course, it's incredible. <laughs> right. I don't think, I mean, certainly Jesse James as like a name is a name that everyone in America knows, but I don't think people now really know much about him beyond like the fact that he exists. It's possible he's been superseded by the two members of Team Rocket from Pokemon, Jesse and James. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly like the circumstances of his death. Like, I didn't know anything about that when I watched this movie. I think it's more that, like, Billy the Kid and Jesse James, and, like, these are just names that you kind of hear as, like, they're legendary figures as opposed to real people, which is a big part of what's going on in this movie, right? Like, Robert Ford, the Casey Affleck character, has all of these comic books that are about the James brothers that he's obsessively read and keeps in a shoebox under his bed because he's a fan of them. And the tension between that myth of someone and then meeting the real person is like what the movie is essentially about, right? Yeah. I do love that period of American history from like 19th century up to the 1940s where there were legitimately just A-list celebrities who were murderers and they were primarily famous for killing people and stealing things. Like, you know, Al Capone and stuff being a celebrity and getting offered movie deals to appear in a gangster picture. And it's primarily just because it's really easy to be on the run 
when you haven't invented the phone yet, which is kind of the position they're in here. Because it's like, well, what does Jesse James actually look like? He's a Caucasian man with dark hair and he's five foot eight and he doesn't wash very much like every single other person in the entire country. <laughs> so um, the idea of the government catching Jesse James is completely contingent on people around Jesse James betraying him because they're the only people who can reliably say what he looks like and where he is. Right. So the whole movie is about this like increasing paranoia and the inability to rely on these real fuck ups he's collected around himself. Yeah, I mean, the beginning of the movie kind of introduces the idea that at one point there was this storied gang of impressive criminals around Jesse James and his brother, but they've all been arrested or killed by this point. So he's had to hire a bunch of local goons to help him with his latest train spree. And they're less impressive than the previous guys. But like on a macro sense, you also have this idea of like civilization in quotes encroaching upon them, right? Like this is the late 19th century. It's not like the early days of the frontier. So there's only so long that they will be able to sort of be on the run because there is enough of a superstructure of government and law enforcement to be after him, right? Yeah, and to support an infrastructure of little fan comics. Right, exactly. And the movie begins with, so there's this voiceover throughout, which is really great, which another detail from this talk and screening that I went to that, again, is written up in IndieWire, says that the narrator was the assistant editor, whose name is Hugh Ross, which was, like, not, obviously not a famous person, and he just did the, like, temp track, and then they liked it so much that they kept it, which I think is great. There was a great interview with him in Entertainment Weekly that I found, where it was like he'd done a little bit of acting, but he really was doing the temp track, and he was saying you know, on that day he had a really bad headache and he just recorded it on a microphone in the coffee table and he thinks that it helped his performance because it was a really gloomy, rainy day, which is very unusual in LA. And as a result of this film, he then got more voice work. He was like doing Western style voice work in like an ad for like a trucking company and then the movie Age of Adeline because they were like, oh, there's this great like masculine Western voiceover guy. (laughs) And then he kind of goes back to his normal tech job on the side. That's amazing. I mean, he's fantastic in this. Oh, yeah. I assumed it was some character actor, you know. (laughs) Yeah, they tried to re-record it and like it wasn't as good. So they just had this kind of like shitty, like quality wise shitty demo track over the movie. But the voiceover sort of comes in and out throughout the movie. And we should mention that it's based on a novel by this guy, Ron Hansen. And so I assume that a lot of that voiceover is from the novel, though I have not read it. And the movie opens with this sort of five to ten minute section of showing Jesse with this voiceover. And there's all these assertions being made about what Jesse is like from this sort of outsider. And there's this tension between how much this person, who obviously we don't know who this person talking is, how much he knows about Jesse and what authority he has. And then like what we're seeing, like, is that real? Like what the relationship between those things is that's really fascinating in terms of the idea of like legacy and authority the thing that always sticks out to me is there's some line about how he has some granulated eyelids with his eyelids and he blinks a lot and the shot that they show when he's talking about this is a shot of brad pitt where he's not blinking at all despite the narrator being like he blinks all the time (laughs) and so there's this constant sort of like destabilized feeling throughout the film not in the sense that there's 
literal inconsistencies in terms of what you're seeing in the narrative, but just the sense of this voiceover continually recurring and reminding you that there is this outside perspective that is going to receive this and it's not going to be sort of consistent, right? Which comes up at the end of the movie again. Um, so obviously this is primarily a two-hander. It's got a really interesting ensemble cast of character actors, but the leads are Casey Affleck in the lead role and then Brad Pitt in the secondary lead role in a way that definitely was reminiscent of Fight Club to me because you've got the sort of weedy guy opposite Brad Pitt playing with Brad Pitt's star power. Obviously kind of coming to this in 2022, it's like slightly uncomfortable introduction for me because it's like I would not be watching a modern movie with Casey Affleck. But you know, this film was made many a year before the current allegations. And I guess your mileage may vary on whether you're kind of comfortable watching old movies by figures of that type. But kind of artistically as an actor, (laughs) while he's not a good person, very impressive performance in this film. And the kind of interplay between these two characters is extremely well observed and interesting and intense and fucked up. Yeah, I mean, I think the casting is one of, I mean, I think this movie is basically perfect and like one of the best movies ever made. So obviously I think the casting is great, but I do think (laughs) (laughs) the casting is one of the things that succeeds so well. I mean, as you say, it's sort of like, well, here we are talking about how great Casey Affleck is in this movie. But the problem with Casey Affleck is not that he's a bad actor. In fact, the opposite is true, right? He's a great actor, which is why he keeps getting work. But I think that part of what and I do want to talk about the the supporting cast after we go through the big guys because I think the supporting actors are like fantastic in this too part of what is so fascinating to me about this movie and feels really sort of smart and self-aware to me about its conception is the way that Brad Pitt is utilized and then how Casey Affleck plays against him right because as we've been saying like this is all about the idea of Jesse James right not so much in American culture now, but like as he was at the time is this sort of enormous figure and how that's affecting people around him. And obviously Brad Pitt is one of the biggest movie stars in America for the past 30 years. And I've seen basically all his movies, I think. And he tends to do two types of roles, which are either roles where he's just like a really sexy and charming guy and he'll have like long blonde hair. And he's just like, knows he's an expert in something. That's what it is. It's like, he's a real expert in something. In Ocean's Eleven, he's an expert at how to steal things. In Moneyball, he's an expert in baseball. Like, you can go on and on and on. And the other type of role that he does is basically like a man having a masculinity crisis, right? Which is really interesting because the first type of thing I just said is like the epitome of like what men want to be. Egomaniac movie star stuff. Yeah. And... This is, like, the perfect nexus of those two things. Like, clearly this is one of his serious films. I think it's his best performance. The only other one that is in contention for me is The Tree of Life. I mean, I think he's generally very good, but those two are definitely his best roles, I think. But in this, he's playing someone who is larger than life, who is a master at doing what he does. But it's a dark and horrible thing, right? So, like... Bob has this idea of him as this, like, outlaw and it's so exciting. But we see him rob and threaten people in this movie, and it is awful. Like, it's really 
upsetting. Yeah, and the reason why the people around him obey him is because he's a terrifying monster who's really emotionally volatile and also they want to get rich. Yes. It's not because he's this like incredibly charismatic figure. <laughs> Although he kind of is, like in a weird vampiric way, but I was you know. gonna say it's a perfect blend, right? Because they are all afraid of him, but he also is really charismatic because he's Brad Pitt, right? And the movie wouldn't work if he were genuinely just a terrifying monster with no redeeming qualities, because then you would just be like, yeah, someone should shoot this man and like get rid of him because he is a bad person. And he has a really interesting relationship with his own celebrity because obviously he doesn't hate it and he finds it quite amusing and he wants people to find him impressive, but at the same time, it's not super important to him. He doesn't believe his own hype. Like, he doesn't think he's this character. He just sees it as something that's useful to him. And also, he's not living a, a famous person lifestyle. He's in hiding for the whole movie. And he just finds it morbidly hilarious that people like Bob Ford are around reading magazines about him and being like, oh, you're so cool. And like, there's this part towards the beginning of the film, like shortly after they've met and done their first crime together, where... Robert Ford is just like reading a newspaper description of how handsome and impressive he is. And <laughs> and like Jesse James is like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> right, which obviously like you can imagine Brad Pitt having that interaction many a time. Yeah, probably with like the intern on this film. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm sure we've talked before about how like every man in Hollywood is obsessed with looking exactly like him in Fight Club. Like they're all just... Yeah, we have him to blame for the abs epidemic. Yeah, and so he is the perfect person to be playing this role because he is like the ultimate movie star to us. And so we understand how that translates to these characters, but it's poisoned, right? Because he's dangerous. But I also think the writing is just so smart that like, only real action sequence in the movie is this train robbery at the beginning. And we see him, like him and the gang robbing people. And he seems to just be deriving pleasure out of it. Like they're quite cruel and violent to people. And like he kills someone and like it's it's just nasty. And then there's a scene later in the movie where he's trying to f- find information about like someone who might have betrayed him because he's paranoid about being found. And brutally beats up this 12-year-old maybe boy who is a cousin of Bob Ford um, and his brother is also a character in the movie. And it like, I had to close my eyes and I've seen this movie several times. Like, it's just, he like threatens to like pull his ear off. It's It's horrible. 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 And you get the sense that he's out of control. There's something in him that he doesn't really, that he can't control, right? And afterwards... He's, like, crying into his horse because he's so disturbed by what he's done. And so this sense of him as someone who is both thrilled by his own ability to break the rules, but then also can't control that sometimes and clearly hates himself on some level, right? He's one of these characters, and indeed real people, who has this horrible, violent 
hyper-masculine work life, if you could put it that way. And then his home life is just this very cozy and affectionate relationship he has with his wife and kids. But unlike a lot of kind of depictions of that kind of divided personality you see, it just felt to me like his relationship with his family was really shallow. Like he loves his kids and you see all these scenes of him being a really affectionate father and his wife seems to love him and they don't really portray them having a contentious relationship. But at the same time, I wouldn't say he necessarily views them as human, you know? Kind of like they're pets or something. Yeah. I believe the earlier cut had a lot more of her in it. Um, Mary Louise Parker plays his wife. Yeah. I love Mary Louise Parker and I did feel like the female roles in this movie were lacking, (laughs) even given the context. Yeah. I mean, so I think that she was in it more originally and then had to be cut and then Zoe Deschanel shows up for like one scene at the end of the movie as Bob Ford's love interest. Yeah, to nod and smile comfortingly. A great role. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so apparently there was like an hour after he kills Jesse that the studio had them cut. So I think she probably had a way bigger role. But I'm not bothered by that because I think the movie is so long. Like something has to go. And I think what you're saying about Jesse's relationship with his family, I think really works in the context of the film because you do get the sense that they are just 100% not a priority for him. Well, he, he doesn't express right? any care about the potential repercussions for them if he gets murdered or arrested. Like that isn't something that even comes across to him apparently. Yeah. I think you he clearly does love him and you get the sense that like if someone showed up and started threatening them, he would kill them. Right? Yeah, of course. But also he would do that to someone who like stole his cigarette case. Right. He's not thinking about it. And you, and also you get the sense that his wife is like si- like knows what she's signed up for, like clearly. And I also like that there's some part of his life that is a mystery because that adds to this sense of like, you're not quite seeing everything. I mean, I do like it when there's a part of a film that's none of my business. Yeah. And I think particularly because we do have scenes with Jesse without Bob, but not a ton of them. And we're mostly thinking about him through Bob's point of view. And so it totally makes sense that Bob has no understanding of this woman because he's it's heavily implied that he has not had sex. And just like marriage is not something he gets, right? And there are also a couple of very funny moments where like he shows up and she's like, Bob's here. <laughs> like she obviously <laughs> does not like him. But also right from the very first scenes where we meet Bob, which is like the first scenes of the movie, he just very intentionally has a that's a weird little guy vibes. The first scene is when all the kind of gang members are hanging out in the forest. And you see everyone having a casual, like, men in a Western style chat. And then 19-year-old Bob sort of lollops over to try and sit down with them. And he's so socially awkward that he either chooses precisely the same moment when everyone else is planning to leave, or they decide to leave because he's shown up and decided to participate in the conversation. And then he goes to harangue uh, Jesse James's brother to try and get a more permanent job as a criminal and completely puts his foot in it. And it's like, it's such a good performance. Like his twitchy little face. It's also the first time when I've seen a lot of Ben Affleck's lopsided smile in Casey Affleck's face was very present in this film, I think. Yeah. So at contrast to everything we were just saying about Brad Pitt is this like matinee idol, like he's a, you know, God. Casey Affleck was cast 
partly because he was relatively unknown at this point. Like, he'd been in the Oceans movies, but, like, he's obviously not the main feature of those. And, like, he has a tiny role in Goodwill Hunting, but, like, no one's remembering him from Goodwill Hunting, yeah. I right? mean, he's primarily famous, even now, for being named Affleck. Yes. And, um... Uh, Andrew Dominic said that basically everyone who came into the audition was doing like a Travis Bickle thing, and that was not what they were looking for at all. And Casey Affleck came in and basically did this like awkward teenager routine, and they were like, okay, this is much better. And I just think he is so unbelievably good in this movie. Again, awkward to be praising him, but we'll dispense with that and move on. I can think of very few performances that are this completely unnerving, but not in a, again, like Travis Bickle way, where clearly the person is like, I'm playing a weirdo violent guy, and I'm gonna be like, you know, Joaquin Phoenix is the Joker. Sorry to Joaquin, whom I love. This is just someone who has literally no ability to talk to another human being at all. And not in a sympathetic way. No. Because... There's only one person you can imagine him wanting to kill, which is the title of the film. And the main threat with him is like, if you're stuck in a room with him, it's going to be memorably awkward. Yeah. And it's not that you feel no sympathy for this guy throughout the course of the movie. Like you definitely do at various points. But... Mostly because he's being victimized and bullied by people. Yes, correct. Rather than him being a sweet boy. Like... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's not that your heart's bleeding for him. It's just that there are moments where like he's being treated really badly but he's so unappealing that that balances out the sense of like jesse is not a good person right so it's really not the end of the world for him to be dead but both the sense of this being a real betrayal by the time it finally happens and the sense of like bob just sucks <laughs> makes the whole thing like <laughs> and also the fact that there's just gross. no moral element to this yes. conflict it's not like he's yep. doing it because he thinks jesse needs to die even though by the kind of second half of the film he's roped himself into working on behalf of the law and the government incidentally i was like there's a scene where they have the the governor of missouri and i was like god this character actor looks really familiar and of course it is not so much a character actor as bill clinton's former campaign advisor who is a guy who occasionally appears in himself as himself in like politically themed sitcoms and stuff, and that's why I recognize his face from. And it's like, God, makes a good makes a good governor. <laughs> it's James Carville, yes. He yeah. is very, very memorable in face. Yeah. Very memorable voice, also. When he showed up, I was like, of course you're in this. Basically, I mean, I think we should expand the scope a little bit to talk about the, how the whole gang operates, because I think that that gives more context for what's going on with Bob, because so much of what is like, a problem for him is interacting with these other people, right? So Sam Rockwell plays his brother, who is really dumb, but, like, fundamentally well-meaning. I mean, it's a very much, it's a Sam Rockwell role. And like so many Sam Rockwell roles, Sam has boldly fallen on his own sword, or perhaps hair scissors, and has a bad haircut. He's a real bad haircut actor, is Sam. I mean, there's so much craft stuff to talk about this movie that we haven't barely touched yet, but... Everyone in this movie has really greasy hair, and a lot of them have bad haircuts. And I was just like, I love this. This is verisimilitude. Jeremy Thank Renner you. looks the worst. Oh, so bad. I was also very so curious about Jeremy Renner in this, because I've 
like I've never seen one of his serious roles because like he kind of did more serious roles prior to the Marvel and C-list action movie era. And I was like, okay, gonna see if Jeremy Renner is a great dramatic actor. And like of all the actors in this movie, I was like, he is the one who was fine. Well, his role is just nothing. Like, he yeah, just I mean, it's like he was there. Yeah. Um, and he was not famous at this point. No, no, no. I mean, he was just like a guy. I was in awe of how much Garrett Dillahunt looked like a desiccated corpse. He looked terrible in this movie. I was like, 15 years later, he's looking better now than he did in the fictional world of this movie. <laughs> well, in addition to the greasy hair, I was just reveling in how bad their skin looked. Except for Casey Affleck, who has good skin because he's got—he's yeah. supposedly nineteen. He was like mid twenties, I think, when they did this. And everyone else is looking very weathered and aged, but no one so much as Garrett Dillahunt, who's literally. There's one scene in particular. I'm sure we're thinking of the same thing, where you're just like, "Are you about to just fall over dead? Like, what is?" That? Well, that's the thing. Was like you watch a lot of westerns where. It's explicit that what they're living on is like whiskey. It's like it's a primarily whiskey-based diet and occasionally they'll like have some beans or like a bit of like movie prop meat. And it's like Garrett Dillahunt is the one who looks like he's really embraced that lifestyle. Well, and he says that his cry he was sick when he was time to plant the crops, so he doesn't have any food and um, he's looking bad. The star of the supporting cast is definitely Paul Schneider. Oh my god. Whom I adore. Every scene he was in in this, I was like, what the fuck? Because, like, we discussed Paul Schneider in our episode about Bright Star, which you should listen to and also definitely watch Bright Star. And, of course, he's kind of best known as, like, sitcom-y stuff. But having now seen Bright Star and this, I am like, where's the Paul Schneider love? This guy was the absolute star of the movie for me. He is playing this appalling pervert who's just like hitting on every woman. And I think underage girl, because at one point he's like moved his attentions onto a girl who I think is probably meant to be like, maybe like nine. This guy is a real monster, but what a performance. Absolutely astonishing work from Paul here. So he had this in 2007 He was in Lars and the Real Girl in 2008, which is a movie I haven't seen in a long time, but I really loved. And I did see it several times. He plays Ryan Gosling's brother in that. So it's like a pretty substantial supporting role, playing just like a nice normal guy, but in a very like real way. And then Bright Star in 2009. And then what the fuck happened? Where did he go? He was on, I think, one season of Parks and Rec. And then I think he quit. I don't think they wrote him off. I'm pretty sure he quit. So I wonder if he was just like, you know what? I'm not interested in the big scene. He has been working steadily. It's mystifying to me. I remember around this time he audited a film class on Kieslowski at Columbia University that a friend of mine took that was a seminar, which I remembered when I brought this up to her recently and she did not. So Paul Schneider was enough on my radar in like 2009 that like, I wasn't there, but I remembered him doing this. And I think he's just like, he's really into Jane Campion. I remember him talking about like when Bright Star was happening, he was just like, I just love the piano so much. And I was like, correct opinion. So I just, seems like a smart guy who just maybe isn't that ambitious. I don't know. But I think he is incredible. He is so good in this movie. It is sick. Because as you say, he is playing obviously a horrible person. Which is like the whole, this is this movie's thesis, right? Like, but he's so charming that he is just so fun to watch. 
And he's doing this kind of CAD thing that's so, like, he's barely even trying. Like, he tries these lines on this woman. He goes with um, Jeremy Renner, who is Jesse's cousin, to visit his dad, who is, like, a million years old and is married to this very young, beautiful woman. And, of course, he's gonna sleep with her. Like, we all, it's so obvious. And Jeremy Renner's like, don't do it! And it's like, he's gonna do it. And he's saying these sexual innuendos to her that are like, he's, they're so obvious, it's like, put a little effort into this, buddy. Like, come on. And you can tell that she's just like, I'm, I'm in. Done. (laughs) It's like there's no other decent looking man around here. He's up for it. He seems like he knows what he's doing. Go ahead. And the great thing about that scene is like after he's kind of flirted with her a bit at dinner, he arranges an assignation with her in the middle of the night and he goes to find her at the privy and she is literally sitting on the toilet taking a shit and they're flirting while she's on the toilet. And I'm like, this is one of the greatest historical drama scenes I've ever seen because it's fucking disgusting. It's disgusting. Oh my God, I love it so much. privy toilet assignation. Unbelievable. Yeah, just his, again, his combination of like, genuinely you're like yeah you are quite charming and attractive but also incredibly pathetic and like yeah i mean he's very smug his shtick is that he is the most literate one like he knows poetry and can put a sentence together than anyone else in this yeah except and is right manipulative and smug and self-absorbed and happy to murder anyone who gets in his way and just very flirty. And he's got a great physicality to him as well. He's got a lot of really good leaning in this movie. Some primo leaning. Really just Paul Schneider. God, where is he putting it? Come back. Do some interesting work. I know. I, yeah. But like everyone else in the film, right? He gets got. Which is the whole, again, the whole kind of point of the movie. And in the most undignified manner possible... so i think probably a lot of the studio's issue with the cut being so long is that there is all this stuff going on with these side characters but i think it's really vital for the movie because it's where the humor comes from like 90 percent of the humor in this movie comes from paul schneider and you need that release because again i've seen this movie i think this is the fourth time i've seen it and i fully am in agony like every time casey affleck says anything like it's just so uncomfortable. The secondhand embarrassment is too much. They're all like, of course, you know, Andrew Dominic knows what he's doing. And so the secondary stuff is mirroring the primary stuff, right? So Jeremy Renner finds out, of course, that Paul Schneider has slept with his father's wife and is like, I have to kill him because that's normal. Like, that's the obvious next step to this situation. And so Paul Schneider is staying at the Ford brothers' sister's house where, like, they all kind of hang out. And he winds up, like, Jerry Renner winds up, like, storming up the stairs and they have this stupid shootout in the bedroom. Sam Rockwell, like, falls out of the window and (laughs) Jerry Renner winds up dead. Paul Schneider winds up shot in the leg. And it's just, like, what was the point of all, like, this was so (laughs) stupid. What I also love about this is... Obviously, in the Western genre, there's this big, long tradition of gunslinging shootouts, which is very cinematic. And I obviously do not disagree with or disrespect in the slightest. But kind of the concept is like, who is like the sharpest draw and who's the greatest shot and all this stuff. And that is kind of coming in itself from all these Old West legends of people who were like the fastest gun in the West. But 
especially if you just like read 19th century newspaper articles about like when someone was injured or murdered or whatever or any report it like it is just like all your guns are shit most of your bad shots even now like when you read about like police shootings and stuff like they're always fucking messing everything and in this scene we have two men who are standing six feet apart from each other and have both like emptied their weapons at each other and one of them has hit one of them once and the other one doesn't get hit at all and the only reason that Jeremy Renner gets shot is because Casey Affleck shoots him from behind and Casey Affleck is meant to be a good shot and it's just like yeah I mean yeah they fucking miss all the time because they're all terrible and the guns are bad and also they're panicking and it's really stupid and disastrous and as Morgan said pointless. Yeah, and then you see that, like, in the immediate aftermath of this, Bob is quite shaken up because it's obviously just, like, shocking and upsetting to kill someone. But within maybe five minutes is looking really smug and pleased with himself. Yeah. That he's murdered someone. But like he's a horrible little monster. Right. It's not even that, like, he was, you know, cowardly for shooting someone from behind or whatever. He's friends oh, with Paul Schneider, right? they're all happy to right? shoot people and, from like, behind. Right. But, like, in terms of him being proud about it, the guy was going to shoot his friend, so you kind of have to shoot him, right? But he's just so pleased with himself. And the little, like, awkward grin on Casey Affleck's face in this movie, oh my god. (laughs) It's so distasteful. So, anyway, he's in with all these other guys who are all kind of losers and fuck-ups and idiots, except for Paul Schneider, who is a loser and fuck up but is smart and they know that he's obsessed with jesse james and so they just mercilessly mock him for this including his own brother all the time in front of jesse in front of jesse those are the moments where i think you do feel some sympathy for him which get undermined pretty quickly by him acting like an asshole but it is awful like it's really cruel and then jesse is also an asshole so he doesn't try to change the topic of conversation or just like undercut it and move on right he exit on and there's a scene directly in the middle of the movie where this goes on for a long time in a dinner conversation that is just totally excruciating and that's kind of the turning point where like after that bob is kind of really disillusioned by him and i think that dynamic of like obsessive worship is really is really interesting. And in the interviews I read with both of them, Brad Pitt is describing it as like a Mark David Chapman type thing, which obviously was a reference that like was discussed with, you know, the publicity and whatever. And um, Casey Affleck's like, it's definitely not a Mark David Chapman type thing. Like he's just this awkward teenager who like doesn't know how to function and idolizes this guy and this guy is a total asshole to him, which is also true. So I kind of liked the like dual actor's Totally embodying their, <laughs> yes. like, characters, right? And um, also, like, in, in addition to the very obvious kind of fight clubbish homoerotic undertones to a lot of this stuff, including kind of the rough, the rough housing, it sort of overlaps with there's some scenes where they're very clearly kind of framing him as if he either is Jesse's son or he wants to be. And when he first goes to the James household, the narrator is, like, talking about how maybe Rob could hang out with Jesse's son, who's like a six-year-old. So it's kind of putting him on the same level. And then when he returns to the house, they describe him as a cousin, because obviously you've got to explain to the kids like why these guys keep showing up. So it's like, he's like a younger cousin. And then toward the end, when the relationship between these two men is much more contentious, there's a scene with him and Sam Rockwell playing Robert Ford's brother, 
which gets like violent. But before that, there's this amazing framing of Jesse James kind of reclining on the couch and then Robert Ford is sitting on the floor playing with a children's toy. So it's like a portrait or a photograph of a father and son. And he's just sort of meekly and awkwardly playing this toy. It was such a good way of framing those characters. And then like five minutes later, he's got a knife to Robert's throat. And then he's laughing that off five minutes later as like a hilarious joke he was doing. And it's just like the volatility and like the daddiness. Oh, it's great. Great stuff. Well, we should talk more about the homoeroticism because we didn't actually talk about it. We just said that it <laughs> said that the movie had it. There's a quote somewhere in this endless document that I've put together where Andrew Dominic, he basically says the movie was way gayer without the voiceover, which I thought was really interesting. I'm sure the studio was like, put the voiceover back in. <laughs> I mean, I think the voiceover is I'm not is even sure necessary. why that would be. Just because you don't have, like, the corrective device of a third perspective describing what you're meant to be thinking. Yeah, totally. So they actually, the gayness is in the minds of the studio bosses watching the film. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't him saying that that was what they said. It was like, that was what was the case. And I can completely see that because, as I said, I actually am always kind of surprised by how much that's a part of the movie when I watch it. And that's normally something that I'm paying a lot of attention to. And in this one, it's not the primary thing I'm thinking about, but it, it is there. And I think what's part of what's interesting about what the movie is doing is that like, it's clearly present, but it's not appealing in any in any way, right? And I think maybe if you take out the voiceover, there's more a sense of like, you being involved in the tension somehow, whereas again, that voiceover is distancing. But basically, Bob has this, as we've said, like obsessive fixation with Jesse. And you mentioned the scene right at the beginning where he's like reading off this newspaper article about how hot Jesse is to (laughs) Jesse, which, I mean, unbelievable. And there's a scene not long after that, because he's been asked to stay at his house to sort of help out with stuff. Jesse's taking a bath and Bob like walks up and sort of watches him from the doorway and Jesse tells him to go away, which he doesn't do and continues making awkward conversation. And Jesse says like, I can't tell if you want to be me, if you like, like me or want to be me or something. Why do you like me or want to be me? Which is the animating question of the film, right? But this desire to like possess him runs yeah. through the And movie like we too. learn that he has these sort of childhood daydreams of comparing all the things about himself that are similar to Jesse James. Like we're both five foot eight and like we're both, you know, the the younger of like several siblings and all this stuff. And it's like these superficial similarities which he's built up in his mind because he's desperate to be like this man who is absolutely nothing like him in any particular. Yeah, and there's a scene near the end where the James family is off at church and Bob is saying, is alone at their house where he like wanders around and like tries to adjust How his could I remember the scene where the narrator explains to us that he's sniffing the guy's sheets? <laughs> yeah, and like drinks out of his glass and all of, all of this stuff. But then also is like, there's a thing about Jesse like missing part of one of his fingers. He like pulls down one of his his finger to make, make it look like his hand. So... It's all sort of wrapped up together and in the fact that clearly this guy has like no real interest or understanding of women and the environment that they're operating in is so dominated by men. Like his sister who has this house that they kind of stay in 
is the only woman that he's interacting with consistently, and she obviously is not sexually available to him. Yeah. And also, like Jesse's wife, they're basically just housekeepers. They're there to provide food for these muddy outlaws who stomp in and out of the houses while fleeing the law. Like, I mean, these men are not interested in them because they're insignificant in their minds, right? And the movie doesn't pay that much attention to them either because it's about the men, which, again, I don't, I don't mind because I think that the movie is about that condition of, like, being in that space where, like, only these masculine concerns matter. And it is a kind of, like, arrested development, sort of, like, homosocial slash homoerotic situation, right? And the one exception is Dick Little, the Paul Schneider character, and they're all like, well, he's the one who gets to sleep with everyone. (laughs) Because, like, whenever they encounter a single woman, like, he's the one who they're going to sleep with. So for everybody else, they're just like, well, sucks to be us, right? And, like, they're revolving totally around Jesse, even if the rest of them don't have that same kind of erotic fixation on them, like, on him. He is the center of the universe. In a similar way that, like, in The Power of the Dog this year, the Benedict Cumberbatch character has all of these men who work for him, and, like, they don't... Women don't enter the picture, right? It's like, he is the charismatic leader, and he has all these men who surround him, and that's the world. And women are not a part of it. Which, of course, leads to complete just, like, nightmare disaster shit because the masculine ethos of these people is just, like, violent and paranoid and destructive. On that note, shall we talk about the train sequence? Yes. (laughs) My mind was blown by this. There's this extremely impressive scene right at the beginning of the film where they rob a train. And I was just like sitting there like, oh, my tiny little mind's been blown. And I was very happy to note that um, when you Google this movie, that is in fact the most iconic scene from this film. And it's been heavily discussed and analysed, particularly by cinematographer Roger Deakins. So um, my instincts were accidentally correct. But the defining feature of this train robbery is that it takes place in the dead of night. And we've all almost certainly seen other train robbery scenes before because it is a staple of the Western genre, which was the first dominant genre of American cinema. And obviously we're kind of used to these happening in the day, so you can see what's happening, and also usually in a sort of more open space. And they put this one in a forest, and because it's completely dark, there's this incredibly atmospheric sense of mystery and uncertainty where we see the setup of Jesse and his brother ordering these new kind of temporary hires, his new gang who are not overly competent to set up the kind of blocks that you put on the rails to stop the train from going and then they all have to like douse their lanterns so it's completely dark and then the train kind of like slowly comes around the turn and you see the light appearing and then you see Jesse James like with his lantern kind of standing on top of one of these rail blocks and you know then they rob the train but it's so gorgeously shot and the lighting is so impressive and it just feels really real to me. And in addition to the cinematography, which we're going to talk about in a second, because it's amazing, it also really struck home for me how much this is adapted from a book. Because I think in really the majority of mainstream historical movies and in Westerns in particular, even ones where they kind of talk about how much research they've done about props and costumes and that sort of thing, there's usually a sense that their main 
visual and artistic influence is always just other movies and tropes that feel familiar. And in Westerns, it's intentionally self-referential where it's either kind of rebelling against or copying stuff that comes before because it's absolutely impossible to excise those influences from your brain because of course anyone who's making these films has seen like a hundred westerns before and with this it very much did feel more like it was coming from the mind of the novelist which granted I've not read the book but there were just several scenes in this film where also kind of towards the end after the news has broken that Jesse is dead there's a scene where you see everyone like rushing to get the papers and you, there's and like then rushing to go and like crowd around his house to try and like look at where he died. And it's that sort of mania for bizarre and violent public event, I think is like a really dominant cultural force in all of these sort of 19th century and early 20th century crimes that you see all the time. Like when you're reading about this sort of thing, it's like 500 people showed up in like Times Square because a corpse had been found there. And it's like, that's not something you have now. We don't consider that to be something that any person would do. But of course, the rubbernecking instinct has just been like transferred to the internet. You know, it's still there. It's just like people did it in person in those days. But like that happens in real history and it happens in well-researched historical novels. So to go back to the train, which is what we're actually talking about, that sense of atmosphere felt original because it was like coming from the mind of a writer rather than the mind of someone who's like working through Western tropes. I think you're totally right. I think it's probably a combination of the writer Ron Hansen and Andrew Dominic, who I think spent years and years just like obsessing over this. So there's a quote from him about the novel, which he just like found in a used bookstore when he was looking for something to do. And um, yeah, I don't know anything about this book, but he describes it as a, a really rambling, freewheeling, messy story and having a sheer density of detail, which is something I found very appealing, which obviously speaks to what you're talking about, right? And it seemed like a fully formed, hermetically sealed world, and he got really interested in it. But then also in um, the Fresh Air interview that Casey Affleck did for this movie, it wasn't Terry Gross doing it, it was the other guy. So he asked him about like research and preparation he'd done, and he's like, basically nobody knows anything about Robert Ford, so like, you can't really research him. But um, basically he was like, I just relied on Andrew Dominic, who it seems had been preparing for this movie his entire life, the amount of information that he had about all the characters, about every line of dialogue, Every stitch of clothing had been, I'd never seen a movie so thoroughly prepared. He did a staggering amount of work, and I think he made a beautiful movie. And then, like, there's more about this. But it sounds like he just, because it's only his second film, which is totally mind-boggling. So I think he just was like, I am immersing myself in this for, we like... love a nerd. Yep. Because I think there's lots of stuff in here. Like, obviously, there are references to Westerns, and he talks about... Like, there's some John Ford type stuff in some of the compositions, but he talks in the interview I read more about being inspired by some sort of, like, neo-westerns I had never heard of, and then specifically and Barry Lyndon. And old old paintings. Yeah, and, like, Barry Lyndon is not a western, obviously, but there's clearly some McCabe and Mrs. Miller stuff going on in this that's very atypical. And then, like, Days of Heaven in terms of some of the sort of aesthetics. This got compared to Malick a lot, I think literally just because there is a shot of wheat in it. <laughs> and he was like, it's really not that similar to Malick, actually. I didn't think it was that similar to Malick, because I saw these comparisons when I was kind of looking up the film, and I was like, maybe I just haven't watched enough Malick movies. <laughs> I think it's literally the one shot of wheat, and, and like there long. is some Days of Heaven stuff. It's taking place at a similar period of time and like a, in a similar part of the country. I mean, I was thinking more of There Will Be Blood, 
same year. Yeah. So, you know. Concurrent. Patricia Norris, who did the costumes on Days of Heaven, also was the production designer and costume designer on this movie, which is pretty amazing. He and Brad Pitt, like, calling Terrence Malick Terry. I was like, how do you, like, obviously Brad Pitt's no surprise, but like, how does Andrew Dominic, who's made one movie, know Terrence Malick? Like, what the fuck? But he showed it to him and Terrence Malick was like, I think it's slow. Which I just, like, (laughs) amazing. Sure. Okay, Terry. (laughs) It's not anything like Malick, but I can see, like, hints of a visual influence maybe but the cinematography is by roger deakins as we said and this is his finest hour in my opinion i think this is his best film it is just completely staggering how to even describe what's going on i mean we will link in the show notes to a very in-depth interview he did with the cinephilia beyond website which is fascinating I will only read like a small excerpt here. It's very extensive. It is the most interesting article you will read where an old man just discusses light bulbs for paragraphs on end. But specifically about this train sequence, it kind of just really highlights the extreme technical complexity of doing something like this because, you know, it's very hard to film everything in the dark and also they want it to look historically plausible. So you don't want to have unnatural lighting, but at the same time, it's pretty much impossible to light a scene with real gas lamps held by hand and have it actually look good. So what Roger Deakins says here is, the train robbery had to look as if it was really lit with just lanterns. Of course, if you look closely at the shots, they're totally unrealistic because there's too much light. Nevertheless, our approach worked pretty well. Andrew kept pushing for darkness. And of course, if you haven't worked with the director before, you wonder what he means by dark. In this wooded area where the James gang was waiting to ambush the train, I'd positioned some lights on condors to rake through the trees so you'd get a sense of the trees before the train came. But about an hour before we started shooting, I decided to turn them off and instead we just pumped some atmosphere into the area. Luckily, there wasn't much of a wind so we could maintain a low level of smoke hanging in the air and just let the light on the front of the train provide the general ambience. We shot the arrival of the train without any rehearsal, but it worked out great. The only light in the whole scene is coming from either the train or the lanterns the outlaws are holding. The lanterns were dummied with 300 or 500 watt bulbs. Sometimes I'd keep the frame and put the bulbs behind the flame dimmed way down. We positioned little pieces of foil between the bulb and the flame so that all the camera would see was a little flame. And other times during the robbery, we just had bulbs and lanterns, one or two side by side, dimmed down and with flickering very gently. And then, I mean, he goes on to talk about like other ways that they used kind of dummy gas lamps within the train with like flickering effects and sort of, and it's like the absolute physical complexity of making all these different light bulbs function in the right way for it to look correct is just beyond the pale. And it's such a big scene and it's all happening at night. And it's like, Deakins is an engineer and an artist and a mastermind. I don't know how he does it. It's unbelievable to me. And he's not even, like, obviously I think he's incredible, but he's not, I like a lot of the work he does in movies, but it's not like I often see a Deacons movie and I'm like, yes, this is my favorite thing ever. And I think a lot well, of his I mean, recent he's working, stuff- he's working as so many craftsmen do to the requirements of the director. Obviously. But I think a lot of his recent stuff I don't love as much. He's doing all digital now, which frustrates me. But, like, everyone made a huge fuss over- the Sam Mendes one, 1918, whatever it was, 1917. And I did not care for that particularly, although it was obviously super technically impressive. I think his work with the Coen brothers is really amazing, but it's not as flashy, which is not a problem at all. It's just like not what, that's not what they're looking for, right? Whereas this is flashy, but it's totally to the benefit of 
the film and it allows him to show off in like a really amazing way. The other really like, again, flashy identical thing he does in this movie is he invented this thing called the deaconizer, <laughs> which is basically putting, as far as I can understand from this very technical interview, putting like one lens on top of another lens to create this like vignette type effect to make it look like old timey. And in these passages where the narrator is speaking, sort of bridging from one scene to another often, you'll frequently have shots like this to give you that sense of like, this isn't quite real, right? Which adds so much to this just like vibe of the movie. Like, I think that they're so important for what the movie is doing aesthetically. And just like the color in the film is, it's all like lots of yellows and blues and Brad Pitt only wears black. Yes. And like his white shirts. An ominous figure in a plain black late 19th century cowboy suit. Yeah. And then the one other big technical thing to talk about is the music, which is my favorite score of a film, like period. I listen to this score all the time. I have nothing intelligent to say about it because I don't know anything about music, but um, it's by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. Nick Cave has a cameo in the film quite near the end. Playing, Which I really like a- kind of almost sort of dragged me out of it because I was like, that was the point where I was like, oh, of course the music is by Nick Cave, which I hadn't yeah. thought about while watching the film. But then I, I, once he showed up on screen, I was like, okay, this absolutely makes sense because the music does kind of sound like Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. <laughs> yeah, he's playing like a, you know, banjo player or whatever. In a, he's playing in Nick a Cave. You know, it's, it's a I classic mean, yes. <laughs> cave role. <laughs> but, you know, it's obviously, it's, you know, violin and piano. But I just think it is just like stunningly beautiful. There was some big, you know, with some websites did a big list a year or two ago of like the best scores of the 20th century and it topped it with Phantom Thread number two. And I was like, yeah, I agree. Like the, that would be my <laughs> my number one and number two. Yeah, I don't know if you have any more intelligent insights on that as the resident music person on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, unusually I don't. I thought it was good, but like I wasn't particularly focusing on it, unlike usual. Yeah. I mean, as someone who's listened to that score a bajillion times. Bits and pieces were sticking out to me in terms of like where they recur. Mm-hmm. The part of music where they where they're doing the train comes back right before they kill him, which is like appropriate in an interesting way. But yeah, I'm not someone who like listens to musical scores while I'm writing or a lot or whatever because I can listen to music with lyrics when I write, so like it doesn't, you know. But this one I put on all the time. <laughs> It's been 15 years of just listening to this sad album. <laughs> yeah, you want those fond memories of just depressed men. Yep. Should we say something about the end before we conclude? I mean, as we said, basically there was like an hour in the original cut that was takes place after the assassination, but it gets boiled down to like 15 minutes, which I think is probably better. <laughs> um, that shows what happens to Bob and his brother after the fact, which is basically that they briefly have a career as like vaudeville stage performers. As like self reenactors, which is another fascinating artifact of this period of criminal celebrity because he was not prosecuted for killing Jesse James because Jesse James was an outlaw who he was like tasked to find because he, you know, had a trumped up new job as a quote unquote private detective working for the government so he became this public figure and he engineered his own path to celebrity because he and his brother then 
who obviously like didn't have careers of their own, like they were just like petty criminals before this, went touring the US performing the death of Jesse James with his brother playing Jesse James on stage over and over again. And it's interesting because like you see the ways in which he's just like completely ill-equipped to be a celebrity because he's the opposite of Jesse. Like he doesn't have this naturally compelling side to him. He's got the opposite of mystique. Like he's putting himself out there and the public doesn't want him. You know, they're going to this show of prurient fascination, but ultimately the public turns on him because Jesse was such a popular folk hero. And once a folk hero dies, they become doubly popular. And none of these people knew what Jesse was like on a personal basis, whereas they've now had Robert Ford shoved in their faces. And they're like, well, actually, I don't like this slimy little freak. So his brother in his guilt kills himself. And then the point where we get our Nick Cave cameo is when Jesse is really down in the dumps drinking in a bar and this troubadour comes in and just like sings a song about how great Jesse James was. And it's kind of this turning point where he realizes that he's made a mistake or from his perspective, he did the wrong thing and shouldn't have killed Jesse. And sort of the final acts of the film are, it does cover like the actual final years of his life. Like he only lived to 30, but um, he like opens some saloons and stuff and he marries Zoe Deschanel uh, <laughs> in a rare non-fringe role. And then he just gets killed by some guy who is just a random weirdo who loved Jesse James and wanted revenge on Robert Ford. And it just shows kind of the pointlessness of this whole endeavor and how he had kind of like lost his other half. Like he'd lost his sense of purpose and he was still kind of an outcast because he was a weird and creepy guy and also a famed killer, which is just a great ending. And there is a fantastic sequence where we see the public response to Jesse's body shortly before that where it's like Jesse's body is like heroized and like you see people taking photos of it and like putting on ice so you can have a traveling exhibit and then by contrast no one cares about Robert Ford's body like there was no desire to see a photo of that in a magazine it's basically a long montage right that 15 minute stretch and um I think it does such a good job I mean the whole movie's about demystifying this right but as we've said, even though you see Jesse doing these horrible things, he still has this aura of mystique about him because he's Brad Pitt and because the movie gives him that mystique. And he's essentially asking Bob to kill him when that arrives. Yeah. It's like a suicide by cop type situation, right? Like he takes his guns off and he stands up to dust off a picture and like turns his back to him. Like he's, they all, they all know what's going on. And it's this like, drawn out horrible moment and then bob shoots him and his head like slams against the picture in a completely like it's unromantic and just like oh right that's what happens when you shoot a guy right and the fallout does have this like folk tale quality in that like they're reenacting this murder on stage and like he's opening a saloon but the just complete lack of satisfaction and like purposelessness of life after this guy is gone right and the sense of diminishing returns where he's just repeating this act over and over again and it gets more and more pathetic until he can't do it anymore because his brother is also dead yeah and that he's increasingly enmeshed in again like quote-unquote civilized society right whereas with jesse dies this potential for freedom in quotes which we know from the movie is a false promise. 
Yeah, I mean, in addition to all the trauma, they're all just having like a really unpleasant, muddy time, just like squatting in forests and like living in someone's sister's house and squabbling. It does not portray crime as a fun endeavor. No, and they're all like obsessed with the Confederacy and like racists. And like, that's not a big part of the movie at all, but the movie is intentionally makes sure that that is clear, right? So again, I think what works so well about it is that it makes sure you know all of that and makes sure you know this. these people suck, this is awful, nothing about this is pleasant at all, and yet when it's gone, it feels like such a loss, which to me is like America in a nutshell, right? Like you want that idealized vision of something, which is completely a fantasy, it doesn't exist. Nostalgia right? for the worst white man you could possibly lay your eyes on. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you can't help having the feeling, right? Like, you can't help being attracted to Brad Pitt in this, like, mesmerizing, charismatic role. And, like, the movie doesn't really try to solve that. It's just at odds with itself, right? And that, to me, is why this is, like, one of the great American works of art. Because that inner, like, ah, we can't solve this problem is, like, the yeah. problem of <laughs> You America, watch it and right? it's like, maybe it's not a good idea to idolize attractive movie stars. And it's like, no, no. We still haven't managed to grapple with that one, clearly. Let alone, like, the larger problems of society that are implicated by this, right? Yeah. I think it's so brilliant and perfect that an Australian guy directed it, right? Sometimes you need an outsider to to understand. <laughs> so thank you again to Joshua for this excuse to talk about it. It was mm -hmm. such a pleasure. We should mention that Andrew Dominic's next film is coming out this year, supposedly, on Netflix. Congrats. Rated NC-17. Uh, what is it? It is Blonde. Oh, the Marilyn movie. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Another one that was, he got into a fight with the studio over. He's, he's someone who's been, like, attached to things many times and then sort of not. My impression of him at that talk was that he seemed perfectly, I mean, obviously, who you can't know from a talk, but he seemed perfectly appealing, but just like, he was saying exactly what he thought. And I don't think that always gets you very far in the world of Hollywood Studios. So I'm not shocked it's taken him this long to make this movie. He was talking about making Blonde, this film, in 2013 when I saw him. So it's taken him almost a decade. I mean, I assume it took him a decade to assassinate everyone else who was planning a Marilyn Monroe biopic, because there must be about 25 of those uh, pitched every year. There was one in the intervening time, I believe. But I assume this is going to be very different. It's based on a Joan Didion novel. And again, NC-17 on Netflix. Starring Ana de Armas. I think he threatened to sue them or something. Like, there was, there was definitely conflict. So I'm very curious about what the fuck that's going to be. So next week, we are doing another listener request, another long film, which is Burning, which came out a few years ago, directed by Lee Chang-dong. This was a huge, critical darling South Korean film. Also adapted, like Drive My Car this year, from a Haruki Murakami, I think it was a short story. I did not like this movie when I saw it. So I'm very curious to watch it again, because again, I was like the one person who didn't like it. Well, I've not seen it and I'm excited to find out if I agree with the critical majority or with my pal Morgan. So we'll yeah. find out. I mean, most people seem to fucking love this film. 
Yeah, I, I genuinely am looking forward to watching it again because it's never fun to be like, again, the one person who's like, I didn't really like that. And everyone else is like, this is a masterpiece. So we'll see. We'll see about that. But um, yeah, it's me watching The Mandalorian. <laughs> uh, so that will be next week. If you would like to listen to our recent listener mail episode, you can find that on Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find my work at Bustle, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.